You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. One of the most memorable experiences that I've had from the Living School and from the Center for Action and Contemplation is getting to sit at the feet of the masterful James Finley. Mm -hmm. He has this energy, if you've never heard him speak or seen him in person or seen a video of him speaking, uh, he's basically like the Gandalf of Christian contemplation. And he'll start speaking and his words are like Gandalf's pipe smoke where it just kind of weaves <laughs> circles around you. And the next thing you know, you're like in this trance and you don't even know why you're just weeping. Yes. You're weeping and you feel like you're sitting with God and God's sitting with you. And there's like this unitive oceanic oneness of the oneness of oceanic oneness of all oneness of all time. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. He brings you to a whole new plane. You know, I first met Jim when I was an intern at the Center for Action Contemplation 12 years ago. Will you stop bragging about that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to try to stop bragging about it. But anyway, to get back to my story. Um, <laughs> but I had this amazing privilege where I found myself at the table with Cynthia Bergeau, Richard Rohr, and James Finley. And Cynthia and Richard started chatting and Jim kind of looked at me and I looked at him. We both kind of shrugged like, well, I guess we're stuck together for this meal. <laughs> and you know, I have this deep affinity for Thomas Merton. So I was so excited to ask Jim all my burning Thomas Merton questions. And Jim was just very eager to respond and give some insight and wisdom and humor and you know, put some flesh on the things I'd read and know about Thomas Merton. And then the conversation slowly shifted because of Jim's poetic nature of just lulling you into mm -hmm. the divine presence. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden I forgot about my hero, Thomas Merton, and I was just having a very profound spiritual moment, a grace moment with James Finley, which as we were saying is often what happens when people are in his presence or listening to his words. He has this capacity to help you see your life as that, that very meeting place where God is showing up, like Paula mm. Darcy's line, like mm. God shows up disguised as your life. I feel like Jim is so good at getting us to that point of seeing in that way. And I've often told this story, I've told this story on the podcast and at conferences. Mm -hmm. One of the most powerful experiences that I had at the Living School was thanks to, to Jim's masterful teaching where I was you know, a frustrated student, young mom, trying to, to do this contemplative thing and, and feeling like this was really a path that was only available for people who were retired or had ample time on their hands, mm. not people like me who are in the midst of motherhood, um, juggling life and work and, and screaming babies. And so I finally said to him one day during a session, I said, Jim, you know, where's the icon of the, the mystic mom with one baby on the hip and a crying kid on the floor and, you know, burning food on the oven and trying to do work on a laptop on the side and just feeling like I get up in the morning and it doesn't matter how early I get up. My kids are always going to interrupt my mm -hmm. prayer sit. And he said, okay, okay, you be you and I'll be God, you know, in this way that Jim talks. And uh, he proceeded to say, you know, it just means the world to me, Brie, that you get up so early and I see you there and I see how, how much you love me and that you want to spend this time with me. And I just, I can't tell you what it means to me. And so he goes on like this, you know, for a while. Yeah. And then he says, you know, I just, I just love you so much. I just can't bear it. It's just, you're so precious to me. I just can't stand it. So, so what I do is I rush into the body of your children and I wake them up because I want to know what it feels like to be held by you. Mm. I mean, oh, there wasn't a dry eye in the classroom, especially mine. I was sobbing. And to this day, uh, I hear from so many people the ways in which that story has impacted them and how just powerful of an image it is. And this is what Jem, I feel like it's one of his particular gifts is that he helps us see God in the shape of our lives, in the shape of our interruptions, in the shape of the things that we think um, are problematic. You know, he loves to say what's in the way is the way. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just is in rhythm with the beating heart of God, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's a lot to Jim's story, right? Yeah. Like he was in uh, Gethsemane, the monastery with Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was his spiritual director. And this is after leaving a household that was full of trauma. And he gets into his, his story and his trauma and, and his journey from growing up in, in, a, in a household that, that held abuse to working through, um, to leaving home, to going to the monastery, 
becoming uh, a trauma therapist and finding his own healing by helping others find theirs. And he does it all through the lens of the mystic. I think that is what makes Jim such a unique teacher mm. is he's so grounded in in the hurt and the pain of being human. That's right. And yet finding a way through with the poetic and uh, humor and uh, twinkle just, in his eye. The twinkle in, yeah, there's yeah. just so much joy to his presence right. without him being like a huge personality, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. There's a humility and um, such a, a, a splendid groundedness mm -hmm. to everything about Jim. The word that comes to mind is precious, and he uses mm -hmm. that word mm -hmm. a lot, you know, that there's something so precious about how he teaches, but also in the ways in which he helps us discover our own preciousness, yeah. even through some of the places we'd rather not go, even through the, the worst wounding that we've received in our lives, he has a way of gently taking us there, like holding our hand as we mm -hmm. turn and face some of those things that we'd rather not face. And then somehow through the grace of God to locate God's presence in, in that moment of trauma or in those moments of deep grief and wounding, um, that's one of the many ways that, that Jim ha is gifted as, as a mystical teacher and a wisdom mm -hmm. teacher. And he's funny as hell. Oh my God. He is so funny. Seriously. And he doesn't take himself seriously no. either. When you talked to him. I remember there was one time when he just gave this like amazing talk. Like everybody was just like weeping. I mean, like he, he like the entire uh, symposium, all the living school students were like hanging on his every word and he gets down and we're walking along and you know, he's doing his little gems shuffle and we're walking mm. and he goes, I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> and he says, he says, they think I said something, but I really don't know what it was. Mm. Isn't that funny? And he mm. like, that's, that's just kind of his approach. He's yeah. so humble. He bears witness to what the divine is doing in him. And mm -hmm. he has such a lightness and gaiety that it, it's so refreshing. So we're so excited to introduce you all to James Finley if you haven't uh, encountered him already. Mm -hmm. And to kick off this super exciting new podcast, which will be part of our CAC family of podcast shows. And this one is going to be called Turning to the Mystics with James Finley. And we think you're really going to enjoy uh, his lens on trauma, on humanity, as he explores different mystics teachings. Yeah, I can think of no better teacher to be in the teaching this modality of podcasts because his voice, his depth, it all just transcends audio and it's going to go right to your heart. So the fact that Jim is joining the CAC Podcast Network family is, I'm just thrilled because it's another voice I can bring and invite others to check out as yeah. they journey on this contemplative path. I mean, he could literally just read the phone book and I feel like yeah. I would be one with God. Yes, it's that's quite all possible. it would take. Unfortunately, I couldn't make this recording of this introductory episode, but Paul, you did hold down the fort, didn't you, for me? I tried. You know, your presence was missed. You know, it's, Thank you. We have such a beautiful rhythm together when we're in this. And um, I was joined by another staff member, Kirsten Oates, as uh, we were doing this live at the Living School Symposium where, where Jim uh, is teaching with Richard. And so we got the chance for Richard to sit down and Jim to sit down, all of us together, and we kind of batted around Richard's experience on the podcast, which was fun to hear, and then also teed up Jim's to know, so he could kind of unpack where he's where he sees his podcast going, where he sees Turning to the Mystics kind of being a different kind of landscape for folks either just beginning this contemplative journey or those who are already down the path of the mystical journey. We're so excited for you to listen to this conversation between Richard Rohr, Paul Swanson, Kirsten Notes, and James Finley. And we'll see you all very soon for season three of Another Name for Everything. Yay. So excited to be here. And Richard wanted to begin by saying that we have completed two podcast seasons of Another Name for Everything. Besides the excellence and um, beauty of your two co-hosts, what has been a surprising takeaway for you as you embarked on podcasting as a new medium for your journey, I mean, for your teaching uh, of others? Well, I can say I'm genuinely surprised at the level of affirmation, validation, encouragement I'm getting. It tells me we're living in a aural world that listens. Because there's even folks, I guess I shouldn't say even, but who said, I like the podcast better than the book. <laughs> <laughs> Several have said that to me. And of course, that does nothing but excite me. Uh, 
But yeah, it, it we and even that we can give them free. That's sort of part of our Franciscan message, you know, that we're not in this to make money. We're in this to get the message out. So uh, now that Jim is able to do the same thing is just very exciting. And anything I can do to back it up, encourage, validate, uh, legitimate, <laughs> bless, uh, uh, I think we're foolish not to go in this direction. And to have such a master teacher as Jim, as our friend, and uh, all in the living school and at the CAC is just as good as it gets, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. And can you speak to that a little bit when I think of, you know, you started the center um, by yourself, but then as you've delved into conferences and retreats, you've brought in other teachers. What is that saying to you when you bring in other teachers uh, to, to be a part of a learning environment and community? And then beyond just bringing other teachers, what was it about Jim uh, that first sparked an interest in bringing him to, to speak to those who were listening to your work? When did we first have you? Uh, you uh, what happened first is you said you had read Merton's Palace of Nowhere. Palace of Nowhere. And we met on the road somewhere. We were giving a retreat. Yes. And then you invited me to the center to give a retreat. Mm -hmm. And Early nineties, I said, I guess. Yeah. And then we did two big conferences. We two did big conferences. Mystics of the Narrow Gate, Mystics of, following the Mystics of the Narrow Gate, and then we did Intimacy, the Divine Ambush. The divine Ambush. Yeah, and then yes. and, um, uh, I think those were the two, uh, those were the big ones. Those were the two big ones, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Jim and I just have so much in common. We're almost exactly the same age. We were both novices at the same time in that year that crucial year before Vatican II began. And uh, that religious life experience gave us uh, a sense of what I'm now calling order, before the disorder came. And even though we would question a lot of that order now, it still gave us, uh, well, it dipped us into the perennial tradition. So I always know when Jim talks, I'm not just gonna trust it, I'm gonna like it. Uh, uh, it's not like I need to censor or check. My God, he's way ahead of me. The most we can do is give him a, a, a platform to say what he's saying. And we've often said that he brings the heart to the living school. If, if Cynthia's the head, I know it's unfair, and I'm the gut, he's the heart. <laughs> and we make a nice team, we really mm -hmm. do. So now to have a whole podcast mm -hmm. is just something very exciting. Mm -hmm. Jim, what was it like for you when Richard asked you to be a part of the Living School? Uh, well, um, uh, I heard that they were launching the Living School and there was going to be a gathering in Assisi. That's right. And Cynthia was there. That's right. <laughs> and. Uh, as part of this process. Mm -hmm. And then following that conference, um, then I, I was invited to be part of the Living School. Would you want to join Cynthia? And I, of course I said yes. So that's how it happened, yes. really. And it was just a natural fit for me. It just kind of worked, it's been very lovely, really. Yeah. So the gut and the head needed a heart, is what you're saying? I, I suppose, no, I, I do feel that there's a kind of a Trinitarian kind of um, there is uh, energy between us, synergy. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Richard, what, what do you think that Jim uniquely offers students that um, are maybe not in your particular wheelhouse or Cynthia's wheelhouse that they really can connect with at a deeper level? Experiential language and heart-based without neglecting head. And there's so few people who can do that. Uh, we Catholics, and I, I include in that Vatican II liberal Catholics, never really picked up the, um, the mystical level. It was more or less, again, more head knowledge, because that's what Catholics were used to. And uh, it's, if in my experience, it's why wonderful, these are many of my friends, 
Vatican II, liberal, progressive, well-educated Catholics have not passed on the faith to the next generation. Mm. And I think Jim talks in a way that's passable <laughs> on, because <laughs> it's experiential knowledge, it's convicting knowledge, it's knowledge that hugs, tugs at the heart mm -hmm. uh, and, and the body. Uh, and he says it in such a simple, often humorous way mm -hmm. that makes him hard to resist. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what a gift that he discovered us and we discovered him. Yeah. Jim, why is it that you were drawn to the mystics and have been so dedicated to that path? Uh, for me, what it was is that um, when I was 14 years old, um, there was a lot of trauma going on in my home. And um, in uh, ninth grade religion class, uh, the Catholic school I was attending, uh, the instructor mentioned talked about monasteries. I'd never heard of monasteries before. And talked about Thomas Merton. And so I went to the school library that night, and there was a sign of Jonas, which is the journal Merton wrote yes. as a monastery. And when I read it, maybe because of the trauma, I don't know, but it so went right to my heart. You know, it's like whoever wrote this book, like, my God, you know. I think and, that's the first one I read. Yeah. The sign of Jonah. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he, he uh, <clears throat> in the opening page there, he says, uh, he says, as for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude, to disappear into the secret of God's face. And I didn't know what it meant, but something in me did, like I thought it spoke to me. Mm. And so I started reading that book over and over and um, mm. went through the four years of high school. And I just felt called to go there. My master plan was I would go there, have him sit at Merton's feet, and he'd guide me into this thing. So that's, that's how it happened for me. Wow. Yeah. So can you share a bit about that journey? You said at you, when you were done with high school, is that when you left for Gethsemane? Yes, I, I finished high school. All, all the violence was still going on. And um, I, I asked my father if I could go to the monastery. And he said he threatened to kill my mother if I went kind of thing. That's the world I lived in. It was horrible. Mm. And so I got up the next morning and <clears throat> walked down to the Greyhound bus station and got on a Greyhound bus and went to the monastery. First time I was ever out of Akron, Ohio, Cleveland. Really? And yeah. um, went into the monastery and had to be interviewed by three of the monks. One was John Hughes Bamberger, who was a psychiatrist and the yeah. abbot. And um, they accepted me into the community. And uh, so I, I entered. I was 18 years old, 1961. 61. Yeah. What month 61 would that have been? It would have been July. And I was August 5th. Wow. That's today. Mm, wow. 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 I, I, I appeared at the novitiate on August 5th. Wow. Yeah. Wow. wow. July, mm. yeah. Almost at uh, the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Jim, what were you feeling as an 18-year-old entering a monastery? What, what was coursing through your veins? Well, it's, it's hard to explain. You know, the... When I was the, the Cistercian Order uh, monastery that I entered, that Merton was a member of, it traces itself back to the 11th century, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, which traces it back to Benedict in the 5th century. So in the Catholic Church, there's these cloistered communities, uh, the, the, the poor Clares and the, and the, the um, Carmelites for the women cloistered, like Teresa of Avila. And then for the orders of men, it's the Cistercians, the Trappists, and then also the Camaldoli and the Carthusians. And so you, uh, you enter the monastery and there's no active ministry of any kind. There's, you don't, they don't serve the poor, they never leave. There's no television, there was no radio. And um, you got up at 2.30 in the morning, slept on a straw mattress on boards in a common dormitory, mm. and ora et labora, chanted the Psalms, manual labor. Then the silence is very strict. We use sign language to talk. And you weren't supposed to make useless signs. So I didn't talk for about six years. And uh, we're just immersed in prayer, like to just be a person of deep prayer, like seeking God in prayer, and believing that that fidelity touched the world, it mm -hmm. touched the whole world. And uh, so for me, it had a very profound effect on me. It was like having a dream while I was awake 
like it was the God conscious life, is what it was. And um, I just immersed myself in it. Mm. Yeah, really. What was it like the first time you met Thomas Merton? Um, well, when I first entered, th then just before the Vatican Council, there were lay brothers. It was a life of manual labor and prayer. They wore a brown monastic habit. And then the choir, they went on for ordination. They wore the white Cistercian cowl and so on, and they chanted the office in Latin. And, um, and uh, so there was a life of manual labor study and prayer. So because I barely graduated from high school, they certainly had a vocation to the brothers, so they put me in the brothers. <laughs> I wanted to go to the brothers. But here Thomas Merton was novice master, choir novices, and so I didn't get to have him for my director. But he was there, I could see him walking around, didn't get to talk to him. But uh, then there was an experimental program where the brother novices could sit in on the first year class for the second year choir novices studying for the priesthood. <clears throat> And the person studying, teaching philosophy was Daniel Walsh, mm -hmm. who taught Thomas Merton philosophy at Columbia University, who studied under Jolson in the medieval school of Duns Scotus and Thomas Aquinas. And so I signed up and I sat in on that class, and I just took to metaphysics. For some reason, it just, I can't explain, just metaphysical language was a way of putting words to a certain kind of religious experience. And so they changed me over into the choir. And so Thomas Merton became my spiritual director. And the story I tell is that because of my history with trauma, when I went in to see him, I couldn't talk. I'd hyper, I, I hyperventilated. I couldn't talk. Yeah. I, he felt numinous to me, like he was this thing. And uh, I couldn't get my breath. And I remember being very embarrassed because I wanted to impress Thomas Merton. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't even talk. That's yeah, why I was doing this. I, I didn't tell him about the abuse. I just said, I said, I'm scared because you're Thomas Merton. Mm. And he said, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> this shows you the power of an intervention where later I became a therapist. I worked at the pig barn. He said, every day under obedience, I want you to leave afternoon work early before Vespers and come in here and sit down with me and tell me one thing that happened at the pig barn that day. And I can remember thinking, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And I knock on the door, he put the typewriter aside. We'd sit down, he followed all this, and that opened it up. It was like a very healing experience for me. And then that opened up this whole thing about God for me, how I had read his books and why I'd come there. And so it was a, I think it's really true for all my studies in Thomas Merton, Sitting together talking about the pigs was like the essence of his teaching. One really, was, thing was, that happened was, on the pig farm. It really, just come and talk to me like one person to another about the ordinary life. And then that's the grounding place for everything. Brilliant. Wow. And yes. it was just, it just, it just, anyway, that was it for me. It just really just, yeah. I like how you were drawn to metaphysics and then at the, what, what cracked you open with Merton was the pigs. Yeah. That w it was the, the very concrete and real. That's right. And how did that kind of translate into your love of the mystics, of studying the mystics? Well, what it was for me, I mean, it's a big thing, you know, that's what all this is about, I guess. What's that mean? Uh, I'll share one experience I had, typical experience that I had for me, is that uh, I was living, I was in the silent monastery studying metaphysics and Merton. And I used to take these long walks in the woods. And uh, it was in the winter time. It rarely snows in Kentucky, but it can snow there, it can get cold. And so I walked out, and it was a long interval on the Sunday afternoon, you could have all afternoon out there. And I sat at the base of the tree in the snow, and I put my head back against the tree and I just sat real, real still. I can remember it was so still, I could hear the snow hitting, the hissing, you know, like that's how silent it was. And a full-grown deer came and walked right past me. And because I was downwind, the deer couldn't, and I didn't move. Mm. And, he, and what it was, he turned and looked right at me, but he didn't see me. And I got scared, because I thought if I scared him with the antler, you know, he could kill me. And he walked right by. Mm. And I looked back up to, into the sky at the, I could see, you know, the snow comes down out of the, like this. I can remember my prayer was, uh, you know, is this, I said to God, like, is this the way it is with us? That as I look up into the sky and the snow coming down, I'm looking right at you, but I don't see you. See? And if I don't see you, I don't really see the snow either. 
because the snow is your presence in the world. And it was moments like that mm. that when I opened Meister Eckhart, or when Merton started to introduce me to John of the Cross, I, I sensed they were talking about that. Mm. So, I mean, they were trying to talk about the, the intimate immediacy of the divinity of all things, intimately realized. And so when I read them, I started reading them at that level. And, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's one of those statements, goes straight past your head to your heart. Yeah. The way yeah. you say that, Jim. Yeah. It takes a while to let the mind sit with something like that. But oh, well, it, you feel well, it in your heart. It does. You know it's true. I love a statement by Merton. He once said, he said, there are certain things in life we simply have to accept as true or we'll go crazy inside. And they're the very things we can't explain to anybody, including ourselves. Mm. Wow. And he, thought, he said, that's God's voice in your wow. heart. That's good. And he said, the trouble is we play the cynic. You know, we doubt the intimacy of the unexplainable, and we get lost in answers about God instead of the intimacy of God. Mm. And I saw that at the heart of the, the, the mystical lineage of the Christian tradition, I think, is that, to my mind, is along with all the world religions, really. Mm -hmm. I'm curious now, Richard, since we're celebrating your anniversary yeah, of entering that. <laughs> Of 61, and you went in late July? Yeah. I went a week later, my goodness. How yeah. was that for you? Can oh, you I was remember? just so idealistic and just couldn't wait to put on that brown robe, and, and they shaved our head off, our hair off, excuse me, uh, the next, the sixth, the morning of the sixth, uh, the Feast of the Transfiguration. Shaved our head off, our hair off, excuse me. Uh, I was pure excitement. Mm. I didn't come from the trauma that Jim came from. Mm. So I think it was a little safer experience for me. It was like a great adventure. Uh, I can be holy. I'm going to learn what it means to be holy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, so I was very earnest, like a one on the Enneagram is. Uh, probably an excess of earnestness. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> that year, it was so wonderful that, uh, you know, you normally have in our order one year novitiate. Did you have two? Two. You had two, yeah. Uh, well, I must have sensed that because I went to the novice master and I said, can I stay another year? He says, no, you can't because <laughs> I wanted to preserve what I was experiencing. You oh, know, it was wow. just so precious. Uh, most of our days were quiet. I mean, our novitiate yeah. was like your whole life was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you only talked when you needed to talk. We didn't have sign language. These are the things about the old church, <laughs> the so-called old spirituality that really had validation uh, if, if you came with a healthy container. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they worked, they, if that's the right word, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. I loved my novitiate. Yeah. But I was all in love with myself, do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> How perfect I was. And, and even dear Father Benno, I, he had heard me say on one of my earlier cassettes, my novice master said I never made a mistake. And uh, uh, he came to me, he says, Richard, you never did. <laughs> you did everything according to the book. Because I, I thought by doing it right, I would earn God's love. Hmm. Yeah. So the novitiate was made to order for once. For a one. It really is. Yeah. Was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, made to order. What was your fa favorite thing to study? What what took your attention? Uh, in in novitiate? Mhm. Mm when scholastic like when you started your studies, what was your favorite? Of course, I went to Dunscotus College. See, his Dan Walsh was very scotistic, wasn't okay. he? It's another thing we have in common. Wow. Whereas most of the church is Thomistic, Thomas Aquinas, you know. So that's, and again, I always know he comes from the same metaphysics that I do, the univocity of all being and so forth. Uh, only because I had a full four years of Scotus did he become my great teacher of 
And I knew I'd probably never have a chance to teach him to others because he's just so inaccessible. Mm. He's just so, he's called the subtle doctor of the church. And his subtlety, unless you're trained in scholastic categories, it just goes right over your head. But I had time and at least one really good professor to help me unpackage it. Yeah. Mm. Could you... So, so we know that listeners, that it may be new for them to hear Thomistic and Scotus. Yeah. The, 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 the difference, or is there a way to, to speak to, in generalities, about the difference between the two so they can get a sense of, of how you guys were trained in that uh, theology? Well, I'll, I'll put it, and you, you might say it differently. Uh, if you see on the Dominican coat of arms, veritas, truth. Truth was considered the highest, uh, goal of theology of religion, uh, which is why they became, you know, the hammer of heretics and they brought good thinking and we needed it. We thank them for it still to this day. Well, Scotus Bonaventure, building on Francis, insisted that love was the highest virtue. They really called it will. But, but, uh, but they meant the will to love, that w love is a choice, love is a decision. And uh, for people who just took a, a summary course in philosophy, that was usually the way the two schools were differentiated. Mm. And it isn't entirely fair, because certainly the Dominicans believed in love, you know, we sort of believed in truth, I guess. <laughs> but because we had orthopraxy, it didn't look like orthodoxy to a lot of people. So we were never taken as seriously as intellectuals, why we didn't have universities and so forth. Yes. And why I use the term in our school, alternative orthodoxy. But I believe, of course, that it's still orthodoxy. But it is alternative, but not, it's not heresy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we were never called heretics, which I love to say was the broad-mindedness of the church in the 13th century. Jim, does that check out? Yeah, how I would put it, the, first the distinction between Aquinas and Scotus, the Franciscan Dominican school, and then were Aquinas and Scotus were both mystics and so where they merged with each other. The way Dan Walsh used to put it in class, echoing Scotus, Duns Scotus, is that we don't exist because God is, we exist because God loves us. And uh, the primacy of love is the mystery of being a person. And uh, that's where you get this ontology of love. See how, if we would give to love the same stature we give to being, how would we articulate an ontology of love? See, how would we do that? That's Scotus, that, it's that, see. Thomas Aquinas says that's true. But who God loves is who God eternally knows. See. And who God eternally knows is who God knows that you are hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe. See. And since God never, 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 never doesn't know who you are, see, as a kapox dei, a capacity to share in God's own life. That's the primacy of knowledge. But that knowledge is a knowledge that's only realized in love. And it's also a knowledge that's really, it's a very, it's God's own knowledge. See? And God is love. So they both, they circle back around and they approach each other. Mm -hmm. So it looks on the purpose, uh, one sense could be like a dichotomy is actually, you know, sure. the love, the love knowledge, us. nature of reality. And it happens to be our reality too then. Yeah. And it was this divine knowledge that is uh, like carnal knowledge, love knowledge, uh, yes, at least we were always told. Yes, and then the divine knowledge is contemplation. And the divine knowledge is God's own knowledge given to us as our own knowledge. See, that God gives to us the gift see, of God's own self-knowledge, which is yeah. the person that we are, mm. which is, then the mystics use that to give them a language to express mystical experience. See, that was their backdrop 
And uh, so the metaphysician and the mystic are kind of in the same, you know, they kind of, wouldn't you say that's true? They kind of well, echo yeah, each yeah. other. The other one I just referred to, I won't take long, but the other argument was the nature of being. And uh, Th Thomas taught the analogy of being, that all other beings were analogous to the being of God, which is good. I mean, it creates that kapax day you're speaking of. But uh, Scotus went further, in my opinion, and spoke of the univocity of being. Univocity in Latin, one voice. You may speak with one voice, one consistent voice of the being of God, the being of angels, the being of humans, the being of animals, the being of trees and, and waters. And that's what made us fall in love with Scotus. Uh, the doctrine of the univocity mm. of being. But that wasn't taught to most priests. Uh, we thought that was our little treasure. Uh, but that's why Merton considered himself a Scotist and, and also uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins. And you know what's interesting too about Meister Eckhart, who was a Dominican, uh, yes, uh, yeah. following Aquinas and so on as Dominican, is that, um, uh, for, for, see, for Aquinas, I mean, for, for, for Meister Eckhart, see, he, he really saw again the the oneness of those two aspects. Of Positions, this, mm -hmm. yeah. Because mm -hmm. he was a non-dual thinker. He was a non-dual yeah. thinker. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's right. See, for Eckhart, for Eckhart, I'm not get off on Eckhart now, <laughs> but <laughs> see, for Eckhart, one way Eckhart would put it is that if, if we think of God as reality itself, that ultimately just one thing is happening, the infinite reality of God is infinitely giving itself away in and as our very reality. So that if God would cease creating us into this present moment at the count of three, at the count of three we would disappear. For we're absolutely nothing outside and dualistically other than the presence of God. But it's our nothingness without God that makes our presence to be the presence of God. And religious experience is the experience of that. Mm. The, which is Christ it's consciousness. So this Christ consciousness, you know, it's this. Uh, mm -hmm. thing, you know, Beautiful. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Jim, can you fill us in a little bit between entering the monastery and then joining the living school? What, what happened in between? What happened in between is that when I started going the direction to Thomas Merton, uh, <clears throat> uh, he led me in the reading of these classical texts. So I started with John of the Cross. And it, what really struck me is I would sit with Thomas Merton. I was just convinced I was in the presence. He was like a lineage holder in, in the tradition going back to Christ all night in prayer kind of thing. And I would walk out into the woods and sit in, out in the woods and I opened John of the Cross for the first time and I read the prologue to the Ascent of Mount Carmel and it was the same voice, mm. the, like the deathless voice of the mystical consciousness of Christ in the world. And so I just was so immersed in the mystics in that way. So when I, let, when I came out, when I left the monastery, I says, how can I continue to live out here, this interior life in the midst, uh, con uh, the, the contemplative layperson in the world. And uh, so I continued with my, my, my practice and my in-depth study of the mystics and uh, the teachings. And then that's when I wrote Merton's Palace of Nowhere, because I was a high school religion teacher. It's on Thomas Merton's idea of ultimate identity, the true self. And I started getting invitations to lead retreats around the country on and the it's mystics. And still a bestseller. It's still around, yes. And and um, 
it'll be around when I'm no longer around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's really what started. I just got immersed, because I think what the mystics are for people, they sense the mystics are very beautiful. And they can tell they're profound, but they're not easy. But if you can get a little bit of help, like stepping inside what they're trying to help us understand, there's like an inner consistency to everything they say. And if you bring, if you make the reading a kind of prayer, uh, the following of the mystics can change your life, really. So that's really what I'm attempting to do here, how to have a, a, an intimate, utterly sincere, heartfelt, quiet opening up of a process where we can become uh, comfortable with the mystics mm. and realize that in some ways what they're talking about are things that are already going on within us. We've not been given a language to talk about it. And I think it's an encouraging message to give to people. Yeah. I think another reason uh, the book is so endlessly attractive is that title, is the whole thing. Uh, your book is poetic, the way you talk is poetic. The palace of nowhere. I mean, someone has to, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's from him, isn't you know, it? You know where it's from? Who? From the Taoist sage Chuangzi. Oh, it isn't from Mer it, No, oh. it goes back to Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching and Chuangzi. And Chuangzi, the Taoist sage Chuangzi, said, come with me to the palace of nowhere where all the many things are one. And Merton oh, was wow. very struck by Chuangzi. He wrote a little book on translations yeah, of Chuangzi. And so I, as soon as I heard that little phrase, I thought, what a lovely metaphor. Oh, was it a choice, yeah. Yeah. an inspired choice. Yeah. The palace of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. I love listening or being in conversation with you all about the mystics because it just wells up so easily and falls out of your mouth in poetic words where I think the rest of us are running to references at times. Um, and Jim, I'm thinking specifically about the space that you entered into the monastery and having that trauma with you and you've just spoken so eloquently about how you've turned the mystics as inspiration and guidance for depth. What does that offer? What does turning to the mystics offer those who are experiencing trauma? Yeah, sure, that's another big thing for me because uh, when I wrote Merton's Palace of Nowhere, a, a clinical psychologist then offered me um, a full scholarship for a PhD in clinical psychology with family support. If I would integrate the teachings of the mystics with mental health. So I went to Fuller Theological Seminary, the graduate school there, and got my doctorate and uh, focused on trauma and went to therapy for my own trauma, a lot of therapy. And um, what I think it is, and it's what I'm working on now, really on this healing thing, how to be a healing presence in an all too often traumatized and traumatizing world, see? especially if you yourself are traumatized. And um, how do we, go? and I think this touches everybody today because there's like an atmospheric traumatization in the air. Yeah. So I think what the mystics are is, is this, that as terrible as the trauma may have been, and as terrible as it, and it is terrible, it's like being burned alive, you know, it's just horrible. That as terrible as trauma is, there is that in us that is undiminished, uh, unthreatened, and indestructible, because it's that in you that belongs completely to God. And what you'll find in a lot of people in their, in their traumatizing journey, without romanticizing how scary it is and how much courage it takes to walk through, like remembering things you don't want to remember, feeling things you don't, in the presence of someone in whose presence it's safe, like to walk that walk, in the very midst of, a, of sharing at the feeling level what hurts the most, you can come upon within yourself that which has unexplainably sustained you in the pain. Okay? And once you get a touch of that, it's like a mystical experience in a way. I think it's the mystery of the cross in the ground of the body. I think it's a mystery of like a deathless beauty. It's, it's the, so I see God as a presence that protects us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things. Mm. And through your trauma walk, you can come upon that. And if you, go th if you walk the walk, as they say in AA, and you come out the other side, uh, you're, you're, you're just fortunate, you're less symptomatic, self-cutting or flashback, I mean, whatever your thing was, ritualized traumatizations. 
you realize that something was given to you through the healing that changed your whole life. Mm -hmm. And I think what was given to you is the mystical life. And then that opens your heart to have compassion on a traumatized world. Because the whole, each person in the whole world is that. Mm -hmm. Each person is invincibly sustained in the love of God, who's been overtaken by the density of fear and confusion. And how can I be someone in the world in whose presence other people might find it somewhat easier to recognize that in themselves? Mm. And which I think is the contemplative dimensions of ministry and sharing. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that line of protects us from nothing but sustains us in everything, just it's one of those things I need to just echo through my head as uh, I walk about this traumatized yeah. world. And you know, Merton, you say the monasteries are a Christian in the house. You know, raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> the, the mystery of the cross, if the cross means anything, whatever it means, God takes care of us. It doesn't mean God takes care of us. If it means taking care of us, is God protects us from the cruel thing from happening. Mm. Because Jesus, Jesus was executed. And not only that, not only was he executed, but he lost his faith. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So if God loved us to the point of becoming our desolation, see, then we can find in that desolation the mystery of the resurrection shining bright. See? Mm -hmm. And once we've found that in ourselves, then that's what gives us the courage to be present in the world, mm -hmm. I think, in our own way, as we're called to do that. Do you feel like the mystics are really trying to help us tap into that experience? I, I think that um, I think um, let's say that I, I put it this way. I think it's a charism to be called to this mystical state as like your primary longing. Not everybody has that. It's a charism. It's an eschatological charism of the infinite presence of God in the human condition, like somehow it's already realized, realized eschatology. But then I think religious consciousness, discipleship, always echoes with the mystical dimension. But I also think human consciousness itself echoes with religious mystical dimensions. So in studying the mystics and going, like turning to the mystics for guidance, it might not be true that we're called to realize it as, as uh, with the radicality which the mystic realized it, but it's like incremental realizations of non-incremental infinite love mm. that's giving itself to you right where you're at. See, if there's, it's true that re the realizations are incremental and you may just be a beginner, but what if the infinite love of God is infinitely giving the infinity of itself away as the humblest beginning? See? Mm. So the very first step is already actualizing everything. Mm. See, to start to sense that in yourself, like po first poetically when you hear it, but then to sit with it until it starts to sink in, I think that's, so, that's what's so powerful about it, I think. Yeah. yeah, so Jim, let's talk about some of the mystics that you'll be turning to with this podcast. I want to. I want to start. I want to focus on the mystics that I've been reading for the last thirty some years or so, um, and commentaries. So uh, what I want to do is I want to go through. Uh, I want to turn to the T. I would put it this way. Let's say in classical music, uh, each composer has his or her own genius for music, and if you really love music, you can recognize the voice. Same with poets. All poets are poets. But every poet has their own voice, you know what I mean? They have their own mm -hmm. voice. And I think mystics are like that. So there's this common uh, mystical resonance in everything mystics say. But each mystic has his or her own. So we need to find the mystic that resonates, with, you know, who's mm -hmm. the one who's attuned with us. So for me, what I want to do is I want to do kind of an unhurried, quiet, in-depth introduction to the mystics that have touched me, which is, for, is Thomas Merton. Uh, Cloud of Unknowing, mm -hmm. Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, uh, Meister Eckhart, and uh, Roisbrook, Blessed John Roisbrook. And I may also want to include the Buddhist. I also may want to include Zen Master Dogen, um, because uh, Merton uh, introduced me to the universality of this mystical tradition. Mm 
So when Mert was in the monastery, Abraham Joshua Heschel came to visit him. Thich Nhat Hanh came from Vietnam. This is before he went to Plum Village. He's back in Vietnam now. He was dialoguing with the Sufis, the Muslim mystics, had a very deep dialogue with mystical Islam. And uh, so as we kind of quiet, we'll see where this goes. But we may quietly look at this contemplative ecumenism where um, there's this kind of universal language that's in all traditions and transcends all traditions, which transcends the ideological tendencies mm -hmm. of traditions. Yeah. But, so, but those are the ones I want to start with. And I want to do it experientially, like as I would like to look at as seminal passages. And I also want to look at it in terms of practice, teaching, and community. Like how do we concretize it in our practice? And what do they teach about practice? And how, what, do, what do they bear witness to in the teaching? And how do they offer guidance and how to follow the path that leads to it? And then what is this, this community, which is our community with God, which is the community with other seekers? And then what I, <clears throat> which is at the heart of Merton's teachings too, is that my practice is to be habituated to my whole life becomes my practice. Mm -hmm. And my teaching is to be, uh, to be communicated is that life is my teacher. And to have community is that the world is my community, which is Christ consciousness. And that's how it universalizes itself in life, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's my thought. And will your podcast be um, available for beginners? Like, will I be able to, if I'm a beginner to the mystics, will I be able to? I, I think this is what I tell people. My wife used to attend all my retreat talks. I could talk like this. <laughs> she says, you need to know that when you talk like that, a lot of people in the room don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but, but she said it doesn't matter. No. They don't care. It doesn't matter. Because there's a language of the heart that immediately resonates. That's like right. something very That's deep right. inside of me is being spoken to. Mm -hmm. And it somehow bypasses answers. And in the resonance, it names you that you know this. So I would say this. I would say that the beginner, Thomas Merton once said, John of the Cross is writing for beginners. He says that. But Merton says he's writing for a certain kind of beginner. And it's a beginner who begins at the beginning, which is you've been humbly accessed by God in ways you can't understand. And so what I tell people, if you just stay with it, like be patient with it, and it's like music or poetry, as a kind of, where repetition is not redundancy, and let it kind of soak in and see where it takes you. And in that say, I would say, Thomas Merton once said, let's face it, we're beginners all of our life, really. Mm. And so I would say this is for beginners. Beautiful. I have a quick story. Um, my husband took me to Divine Ambush for our anniversary. And it was the first, my first interaction with the CAC. And um, I was pretty deep into you two already, but he'd never read anything of yours or listened to anything of yours. And um, so Jim got up and started talking about John of the Cross. And there was a big football game on that day that my husband wasn't watching to be able to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember sitting there a little anxious, like, oh my gosh, is, is he able to understand this? How's he feeling about this? This is so important to me. And, and you, you know, you talk like you do, Jim. And uh, anyway, at the end, he just turned to me and he goes, I didn't understand a word of that, but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Someone came up to me after one of the conferences. It's not says, he said, do you have any guidelines for how to drink out of a fire hose? <laughs> it was like a torrent. You know? But it's also very gentle. You know what I mean? I think it's yes. very gentle. Yes. It's, it's disarmingly simple. Yes. That's what it is. Right? Well, and then it's changed, changed our marriage, changed our lives yeah. for the better. Yeah. yeah, having continued yeah. on this path. Yeah. yeah. See, this is what I think Francis, like to be in the, like with me, with Merton, to be in the presence of a holy person can change your life. Mm -hmm. And you can realize that you're reading a mystic, although physically they're dead, they, they, they so radically meant every word they said, you're in their presence. And if, if you realize it's getting to you, then you're being carried in the lineage. I think, like, what's this asking out of me? Mm -hmm. What's this offering me? Yeah. It's interesting, the last question on season two of Another Name for Everything was someone asking about, am I seeing this right? I'm seeing the mystic in the everyday. I'm seeing it in my, my friends, my, what I eat, how I participate in the world. And 
it feels very connected to what you're both saying here about how the mystics kind of like help shine a line to the depth of the way you participate in the in the everyday. Could you both further that? And I think uh, to Jim uh, also about what does that look like for how you're hoping folks will take away from what they learn uh, in the mystics that you journey through. With? How would you answer that, Richard? You know, the phrase that comes to mind is from Carl Rahner, a Jesuit, God bless him. And he loved to speak of the mysticism of ordinary life. And that we hadn't achieved that yet. We so tied it up with celibacy, monastery, uh, a certain kind of almost platonic asceticism. And until we released ourselves from that, we wouldn't discover the mysticism of ordinary life. And I think the living school and the, the teaching all three of us Cynthia, Jim, and myself are trying to give, although it might sound esoteric to a beginner for the first time, we're really trying to point them to the holiness of the ordinary. And um, it's, it's got to be true. It's got to be true. God could not have made himself invisible. Let me read that quote I started with. Oh, today, yes, please. Well, that know. Isaiah quote. Great. It's Isaiah 65, one, I put it at the beginning of the book, just this. Now I can't find it. I am ready to be approached by those who do not study me, ready to be found by those who do not even seek me. I say, I am here, I am here, to people who do not even invoke my name. Isaiah 65, one. Mm. Talk about an available God. Huh? But we, in so many ways, really made God esoteric or unavailable mm -hmm. or something other than life at its depths or life at its truth. So many people were touched by you talking about finding the Christ in Venus. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I have a stack of letters <laughs> on that. Yeah, it's true. Venus was my dog. <laughs> and it's true. Anything that you let draw out of you, the positive energies, the divine energies, the love energies, uh, that is Christ for you at that moment. Mm. Yeah. Very really so. And how about for you, Jim? Well, what I think it is, where I'm affected by this when I speak like this, is um, I'll share a story for me. Um, when I first got my doctorate, I was, I was starting my private practice, and I was flying somewhere to give a retreat on Meister Eckhart. And I remember it was so unusual, I got bumped up into first class, I never flew first class before, <laughs> which was great. And uh, there was a man sitting next to me, and I had my sermons of Eckhart open, and I was writing my notes. My handwriting is terrible. And the man next to me, he said, I don't mean to interrupt you, but what language is that? <laughs> I said, it's English. <laughs> I said, I'm giving this talk on the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart. And he said, I'm an Israeli Jew, I'm Jewish, I'm an atheist, and I teach physics at a major university. Oh, wow. And he said, I see no proof for the existence of the, uh, of the uh, non-empirical. Non that is, if you can't measure it, I see no proof that it's real. And I can recall right at the moment, you know how when someone questions your belief system? Because I was going to say, well, if there's no empirical proof for the existence of the non-empirical, is it also true there's no empirical proof for the non-existence of the non-empirical? So that if there is going to be a proof, it's going to have to be an evidence commensurate with what it's evidence of. I didn't, I didn't say it. And then he said to me, because I told him I was a therapist for a week, I was a therapist for a week. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, can I ask you a personal question? Yes, he said, my wife and I had one daughter. She was a brilliant young woman in doctoral studies and she was killed. Mm -hmm. He said, my wife and I were devastated by it. And he said, we set up a trust in her honor and perpetuity that a person get a doctorate in that thing. And then he said to me, this is what got to me, about the trust, he said, it helps, but it doesn't. Mm. And I don't remember a thing we said after that, but I thought we were in the presence of God. Mm. See, see, it helped. And what I call it is people come out from behind the curtain 
And whether it's spiritual direction or therapy, you can tell the change in their voice, like you got a minute, and everyone has a question from behind the curtain. And I think the mystics are about wow. that. Mm. See, rather than that. the words about it, yeah. it's like, where does it, it's visceral, like where does it kind of like, where has it gotten to you? Mm. you know, what are you doing with that? So I'm trying to make it safe. Can I be vulnerable and safe at the same time? See, can I be radicalized in this way mm. and see what God might have in mind for me? And uh, so that's how I always feel I'm speaking. I always feel I'm addressing myself to that. And uh, yeah. It hurts, but it doesn't. That's it, what he said. Yeah, yeah. It, it helps, helps, but it doesn't. It helps, but it doesn't. The trust he'd put together for his daughter. I can't bring her back. There's no words for the pain. But you know what? It helps. It helps. And I thought that was a... See, that's his religious... His love for his daughter was her deathless beauty in his heart, which was non-empirical. See? Mm. You know what I mean? It's just... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, I think that's the world. So I think this is how Jesus walked the streets. You know, Jesus was in love with this. Mm. You know, I mean, this. this is where he lived, and I think those are the mystics trying to, the ultimacy of that, yeah. That's an amazing arc, thinking about just the way you talked about, you know, being inspired by the metaphysics and coming from an experience of trauma and then coming back around to having to, to work with your own trauma and the way you turned around to the yeah. world and then served and helped in the healing of those who, were, who had experienced trauma. That's right and how the mystics have been at the core of that journey. They have. And sometimes I told traumatized people it would help me because they feel very annihilated. You know, they've internalized it, flashbacks are sitting there like that. And, um, and I say, you know, as destructive as this has been and is, there's obviously something in you that's stronger where you wouldn't be sitting here talking to me. See? And if together we could find that, as the base from which to face what's so painful. Because the trouble is the intensity of their pain closes off experiential access to the, that and then that transcends the pain. And that's a lot of the healing journey. And so I think the mystics are talking about the same arc of the great death sublimated to a very refined level mm. like that. And I think it's an unbroken line, really. Yeah. Yeah. I'll share a story. I'll share it to Merton. Sorry. He says, uh, he said, he said, we, he said it to the novices. He once said, you know, we, we tell God, you know, I'm really, really serious about this mystical union with you under one condition. That when I cross the line into mystical union, my ego will remain intact <laughs> and I'll get to become a mystical ego <laughs> and finally get the respect I deserve. He said, but God isn't handing out any deals with this operation. <laughs> <laughs> I like that about it. Merton was so good at oh, David something. Wow. A master. Uh, he was a master, yeah. Mm. <laughs> My sadness is that the typical, and I don't know if this is true, I suspect it is, in Protestant churches, but the typical Catholic at St. Mary's Parish in Akron, Ohio, or anywhere else, never gets any of this. Yeah. They get a watered-down version that's so easy to dismiss. You know what I think they get it, if they're lucky? That the pastor or the homilist is a humble person oh. of deep prayer who speaks from their heart. That's good. And it communicates itself yeah. there. Even if he isn't a wonderful Even theologian. If, yeah, but it doesn't yeah. get articulated to bear witness that's what the living school's about, I guess. That's what CAC is really good. What is yeah. contemplative Christianity in well, the world? And this is the benefit of the podcast and the ability to put you two online like this and give access to your wisdom and years and years of study and teaching. And so we're so excited um, to have Jim join the CAC podcast family. Um, and congratulations to... Richard and you, Paul, for what you've been putting together. Um. It's been a hoot. I've had a <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I it has been in that way. Wonderful, wonderful yeah. response from people. Yeah. And Richard, th knowing that Jim is now entering the world of podcasting, what advice do you have to him as he curates his own teaching for uh, the oral tradition? Well. I think you've already always operated out of this. 
You don't need to try too hard. You just need to say what's hidden there right beneath the surface. I don't know if that's a gift of being an elder now, um, uh, or, or, but the medium itself, precisely because it's free, uh, people know you're not in this to make money. I'm in this to communicate a message. And there's a purity of form that the podcast form allows us. So I just encourage Jim to trust it. I, I know he will anyway. Uh, but it's, it's freedom from both sides, for the speaker's side and the listener's side. Mm-hmm. Last question, do you have any advice for future listeners of Jim's podcast? Future listeners. Because they're going to hopefully hear this before they've thrown their lot in with you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you're going to have to take on, take off your linear, logical, systematic brain, which is what we call in spiral dynamics the orange brain. And we got to know that most of techie. America is educated in that brain. That brain, as good as it is, it might be able to record this conference, but it can understand what Jim is saying. Mm. It won't necessarily oppose it. It'll be seduced by it. Uh, if, if the heart space, the body is at all calm and the heart space is open, it'll find uh, Jim's language, very seductive in the best meaning of that term, divine seduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is this peace? Where is this freedom? Where is this naturalness coming from? And I think that's what we're all longing for mm-hmm. when we have so much jumpy, jumpy, loud, over-opinionated religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim has something much better to offer you. And at some point, we all need to break through that mind to get yeah, to the Christ yeah. consciousness. Is, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for asking you. us both good questions. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of it. Thanks, everyone. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. In the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.